Hello everyone. Welcome to Arthaniti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We are extremely happy to have Professor Amar Chalairi with us today. He is currently a professor at University of British Columbia. He has previously served at the Fed in the New York. He's also served as the research director at CAFRL, which is a think tank associated with the Reserve Bank of India. He has extensively worked on international macro, growth issues and development issues. He's a prolific researcher and published in extensive uh, set of economic journals on topics related to inflation stabilization, uh, how to manage the exchange rate and cross country and within country uh, increases in productivity and growth. We are extremely happy to have you, Amar Thayer. Uh, thank you for your time and welcome to Arthaniti. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. So I'll start with the first question, which is something happening in the recent period, which is the things that are happening with the rupees 2000 note. So what are your views on it? And if I may use a strong word, is it a soft demonetization again? This one's a bit different in the sense that this was not, I mean, it has continued to remain legal tender. It's not been demonetized in that sense. It's like people have been given a window with which to convert them. This is not that unusual. I mean, countries have gone through for different reasons. Uh, you know, the UK did it. I mean, I remember I getting caught in, in, in London a couple of years ago, uh, actually last year, when I had some old, uh, you know, 20 pound uh, note and tried to use it and they said, you know, it's been, uh, you know, you have to go to a bank to convert it. So, you know, those countries, Canada went through the same thing of phasing out paper notes and switching to. Uh, but that's usual, no? Or do you have to make a declaration about it? I'm sure. No. So, so that, the, 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 the key difference, though, is that, you know, in some sense, the difference between the demonetization episode we went through in, in 2016 versus this one is that it's not been demonetized in the sense that it's not legal tender or anything. It's just said, been said that it will be phased out. You have time till 30th September to, to exchange this for. And after that, it's a bit unclear what will be the, the, the state. So that there's a little communication issue there. But it's not like this overnight demonetization that this is no longer valid tender. And now you have to go and convert it and line up in your bank and which was a whole different order of magnitude. The other comparison is other countries have done similar things when they're trying to phase out paper notes and convert to plastic and so on, which is what happened in Canada and the UK. There two people were given some time to convert them and it continued to be legal tender for a while. And once that you know, sunset date came and went, after that you had to go, uh, you know, it was no longer legal tender. You had to go to a bank to uh, convert it. People wouldn't accept it. Uh, because it was no longer. So in that sense, I mean, you know, demonetization, the way we think of it is really when overnight you say it's not going to be exchanged, exchangeable anymore. And those, there were prior histories of those in India as well, when it was really an attempt to sort of achieve something else. Now, not so much just phasing out one currency, you know, one, ten, one bill of tender versus the other. There is, of course, this related question of why did they want to do it? I mean, which is, uh, you know, so there are all kinds of... But if I may continue on it, so maybe it's not even soft demonetization. Uh, maybe it varies and some other countries have implemented it, but it's still around 10% of the currency in circulation. Yeah. Yeah. So is there going to be any effect that we can think of or it's very minor relative to what we had in 2016? Yeah, I don't think this should have any effect, frankly, uh, because first up, people can exchange them for, you know, in 500 and, and, and lower, lower denominational currency. So it's not as if money is just overnight going out of circulation, which was what had happened the last time. And moreover, the rest is just being, in, in, you know, being put back into the bank as deposits. So in some sense, nothing's going on with money supply as defined by M1, right? I mean, that, that we still have. So the big problem is if it ceases to be legal tender, and then you have an economy which relies on cash for transactions suddenly missing cash, then you have a bigger problem. That is, you know, people weren't really using, I mean, you know, uh, when I, I come to India like three or four times a year, and I, I think for the last three times, I don't think I've ever used a 2000 rupee note, because if you tried to use it, people would say, you know, I don't have change, or they were very, it was very, you know, people were very reluctant to use it. Um, of course, it all calls into question why a demonetization episode was accompanied by the introduction of 2,000 rupee notes to start with. And so that, that's, a, that's a whole different question about why these notes were introduced when the, when the goal of the, of the initial uh, you know, demonetization effort in 2016 itself was to you know, uh, sort of make it more difficult for people to keep you know, save in terms of uh, big denominational bills. 
And so that's why the thousand was uh, demonetized and yet reintroduced 2000 in exchange. So you can view it two ways. One is to say that it was just happenstance that there was a plan for 2000 introduction. I mean, there were some practical aspects of it because you wanted to reintroduce very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So probably you yeah. had to introduce it. But I, I guess it, it does raise the question of why was it so easy to print 2000 as opposed to 500. So no, no, it wasn't the, just a printing issue, right? You had to also put it in the ATM and then... Absolutely. So, so I guess the question was there were plans for 2000s already in place, which was, I think there was, I think there is a view, I, I'm, not, I'm not an RBI insider, but there is one school of thought which says there was a plan for 2000 interruptions. You were kind so, of RBI so, insider around um, that point of time. Uh, no, I... Officially, I, I, no. Yeah. I, I do not, uh, yeah. So I, I'm not going to say anything about whether this was actually, I'm just conjecturing that the speed with which the reason that the, the easiest, as you said, the, we had to introduce something. Yes. And the only thing they could find was 2,000 rupee notes, miraculously, which showed up within like a month or within like, you know, 15 days of this announcement, there were 2,000s available in somewhat copious supply, whereas you had very few of the 500. So it was like there was an excess supply of new 2,000s and very few of the 500s. And so that suggests that these 2000s were probably, for whatever reason, there was a plan to introduce them. And so these were there and these were the ones that we introduced, but which kind of flew in the face of saying that we are trying to demonetize a thousand, a thousand rupee notes because, you know, this is people are using this to hoard undeclared income. But then why would you introduce 2000? So maybe this is a sort of an ex post way of undoing it. Uh, you don't want to do it within six months of having introduced it, then you look don't look very good. So, I mean, you know, you kind of do it, give it sufficient time, I mean, six years. So, let's go back in time and you mentioned M1, that's not going to be impacted this time. So, I want to be like super neutral and I know you did a research paper on this, just looking at the 2016 episode in India on demonetization. If you are very neutral, can you tell us like some of the positive and the negative aspects of it? Um, so the negative aspects, I guess, everybody in India lived the negative aspects. So I don't think I'm, we need to keep... I'm not uh, sure if everyone believes that, though. Uh, they thought it was still positive. But. No, so, so I think there are two sides. You know? I mean, so you're, I mean, there's a question about what happened on the net. Was it uh, positives outweighed the negatives or, or the other way? Yeah. So I, in some sense, negatives, everybody lived through the negatives about what happened. So, you know, the disruption that it caused to people individually, to the informal sector, which was more reliant on cash and so on. So those, I think, have been talked about quite a bit. The flip side is uh, the arguments that were, you know, somewhat ex post rationalization for this because, you know, as you know, when the episode happened. So let me take a step back, like even ex post rationalization. Let's do ex ante. Like, is there anything positive that can come out of such an episode? Well, you know, uh, I think a lot of these, I, I mean, let me answer it in a different way. So, you know, ex ante, when the policy was announced, demonetization, there were certain goals that were articulated by the Prime Minister. Um, those goals were then changed. Uh, you know, it was like a changing goalpost a little bit as days went by. Like initially it was black money and counterfeit. Then, uh, you know, we added in digitization. Then there was this formalization. So those things were the last two were kind of added uh, as we went on. And those two goals are the ones that now people kind of talk about uh, much more. I mean, because the first two were clearly based on what came back, uh, you know, pretty much all, uh, you know, almost 100% was returned to, to the banking system. So it was not like ill-gotten gains just got wiped off the face. People were able to exchange them. And second, counterfeit has always been, uh, you know, a very, very small part of the overall money in circulation as far as uh, what estimates we have for it. So those two goals were really, you know, not... Uh, I think serious goals in some sense. Or, but the second, the, the third and the fourth, which is the digitization of the economy and uh, that it was going to force people to adopt, uh, to go rely less on cash and more into, you know, it's going to spur some technological change and, and, and uh, uh, induce digitization. And second, it will force people to go through formal banking structures, which, impl which would imply uh, a greater formalization of the economy. Those two are sort of, you know, good goals. Uh, and I think there's been some success there, uh, for sure, that, that uh, digitization has uh, improved and increased in India. And formalization is also, you know, increasing. There's much more. The, the soft infrastructure that we have has become more uh, widespread in terms of uh, how my, you know, 
uh, tracking people within the country. And a lot of that is because banks have become more uh, a, a bigger player than they used to be. Uh, and so it helps in the, in the formalization of the economy. So I think those two goals um, are good goals to, to digitize an economy and to formalize the economy. I think so any should economy- should I take it the change of goalpost as saying the first two ones, which is black money and the counterfeit, they were kind of not achieved? Yeah, I think we can sort of rest the case on that. I mean, those I think were just, uh, you know, those were goals that were just articulated. And if we talk about the later two, like how big is the impact? We have research papers which have been trying to, uh, trying to see if there is evidence of, you know, clearly the thing with digitization is there's a trend. That this was as an economy grows and develops, there is this... Uh, improvement in, in increase in digitization that happens. And so a lot of the economies around the world have, uh, you know, there is digitization that has been growing over time. Formalization is also uh, a coincident characteristic of an economy as it develops. So this, this is going to be part of it. Did this create some jumpstart some of those? I think some of the experiments that I've seen that people have looked at, whether, you know, the distribution of cash across sectors that were, or, or you know, the uh, distribution, the extent of the demonetization uh, was dependent on where the cash terminals are and so on. And so people have looked at those variations of those to see if digitization was greater in areas where they were worse affected in terms of cash and so on. And there is some evidence that that seems to have happened. Certainly in the cities, I do see... Uh, a very you know sharp uptick in in how people have embraced digital payments. I mean, there, there's no doubt it you know relative to 2016, there is a much bigger uh, you know interface with digital payments. I mean, you know it's widespread. All kinds of payment systems and payment portals are being used, cash. But that said, uh, you know India still is massively rural, and and so. Uh, the question that I haven't adequately seen an answer to is that, is this uptick in digitization, the distribution of this? I'm not completely convinced that it has, you know, spread far and wide into, into, rural, uh, into rural India. From what little I've seen, I, I mean, I haven't seen, I'll be the first to admit that I haven't gone over all, all across rural India. I've seen a little bit of rural Bengal. And digital payments are not as, uh, you know, clearly haven't taken off as, as they have in in. Uh, now, other, other states in India, they, one might be able to find uh, examples. So a little bit in rural Kerala seemed a bit better than, than rural Bengal, but in terms of, uh, you know, how, how easily one could. I mean, the other problem was, of course, connectivity, which is the other thing that I, you know, some the places had machines which would, you would scan and then nothing's kind of going through. It's just worrying. So there are issues of, of connectivity issues, but certainly in some places, the infrastructure, at least one part of the infrastructure is there, but the rest of it doesn't work. So... Um, but the flip side of it is that, you know, the M1 to GDP ratio has been back to uh, where it used but to be. But before we go there, like, I know your survey paper talks about it and there has been some other studies as well. The negative impact was not so long, like hardly for a quarter or two, yeah. although it can be like two quarters bad GDP growth yeah. is bad yeah. as well. Yeah. So if I have to think about economically, like why it should have gone down, the economic growth, and if you can also talk about like why it only lasted this bad impact for only two quarters, because people were worried that it would last for much longer. Yeah, so uh, the economic impact in some sense is, you know, disproportionately distributed towards the informal sector. And that's, that's, that was the, the major concern that it was going to, uh, you know, create long-lasting damage. And so clearly the fact that there was a major disruption is, is not up for, up for, up for dispute. The question is, why? how come the economy made a comeback? Now, you can view it in two ways. You can view it to say that the informal you know, economy kind of just recovered. I mean, once the cash was reintroduced, things kind of went back to the way it was. One also has to remember that there was another you know, uh, change that came in pretty much you know, a few uh, months after demonetization, which was GST. Now, GST had a lot of the same drivers on the informal sector. So some of this digitized interface, some of this formalization, which now we like to hang all on demonetization, had a lot to do with also this, uh, the GST uh, reform that came in, uh, you know, which was, I think, June of 2017, uh, which is when that was introduced. Those were precisely to formalize a lot of the economy. So, you know, I think it would be somewhat naive to attribute all of the, 
you know, whatever we are seeing in formalization to demonetization, it had, you know, GST had a much bigger role to play over there. In terms of how come the recovery was relatively quick, and I think that's just the resilience of the informal sector. People, you know, if you are not able to, in the informal sector, there's very little, you know, absorptive capacity. I mean, you know, you have to recover and, 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 uh, and so, in some sense, what it says is the, the remonetization was done in six months. And that's about the, the length of the disruption we had. Once it was remonetized, it was like back to normal. Then it begs the question of what did we achieve with all of that? So it has to come back to this question of what did it do to uh, the, you know, lives for six months versus uh, did we achieve any long-term gains? So as I said, the long-term gains are really being split between arguments that we have managed to digitize payments a bit, bit faster than it, we would have digitized otherwise. And the second is the formalization. The formalization, I think, has much more to do with GST, whatever has happened than, than demonetization. Are right? there any papers which also talk about the cost of just standing in the queues? Like um, there are, yeah, I mean, as economists, we yeah. want to look at the other side as well, the opportunity cost. In this case, you're just queuing. Yeah, it was queuing. I haven't, I actually haven't done this, but in terms of, it would require surveys of people, you know, who conducted surveys at the time as to how much time was being spent just standing around. But the loss in GDP is a measure for, for, for all of that. Of course, our GDP measures at that time became a little strange because, uh, you know, it's the nature of GDP measurements that we end up estimating what the informal sector is doing based on uh, extrapolating from what the formal sector is doing. And this was a particularly bad time to use that because this shock was disproportionately hit, hitting the, the informal sector. So as a result, to try and figure out from what the formal sector was doing, you know, try to use that to estimate what the informal sector was doing would give you a particularly bad estimate of the economy. So uh, I think whatever shock was measured was an underestimate. I mean, you know, it should be, a, you know, the, I think the shock would be much bigger. Uh, it would be just, just the nature of GDP estimation in India would underestimate it. Uh, I think that, 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 that I think, you know, one would, should pretty strongly be able to assert that. Ah, so you're saying that using these aggregate indicators, let's say the growth fall was 2%. Yeah, it would be much bigger. It would be much bigger. Yeah, because we are estimating that of formal sector movements. We are trying to extrapolate. So this is the time period when these two sectors were decoupled in some sense. Yeah, place. yeah, yeah. Because the shock was very disproportionately on the uh, informal sector. GST was very similar as well. So that is a period when our estimates, I think, are underestimating uh, the negative shock. So, so, so the shocks were, I think, bigger than that. So if you have to conclude the positives and the negative, I know it's very difficult to come up with a number. Yeah. No, I, 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 would you do give, it again? Giving a number, I, I would not have done it then, I would not do it again. I think this is all a cost-benefit story. This notion of formalization, it was happening anyway. GST was going to do most of the action. So I haven't surveyed economists, but if you survey, let's say, 100, how many would say, oh, yeah, it's a good exercise to do? Good exercise? To, I mean, demonetization as being a good exercise. I'd be surprised if you would find uh, more than, you know, 15% who would say. Ah, that's uh, a big number. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I'm being charitable. I would think it should be probably less than that. But uh, it would be hard to find people who would, uh, economists who would say that this was a good thing. So just a follow-up question, and this is the last question on demonetization. When you were doing this survey and looking at other papers, like, is there any other similar example in other countries where we can draw some not at this scale from. not at this scale this this was the scale of it was just uh, astounding that one would do this uh, at this scale in an overnight way uh, was what was uh, it's hard hard to find a parallel for that i mean people have done demonetization exercises in other places but uh, india in particular has done it multiple times uh, but what typically doesn't happen is demonetizing over 80% or over 85%, it was 86% of the people demonetized because of concerns about large savings being held in cash with unaccounted income and so on and so forth. So the standard approach is to demonetize really large denomination bills. India had done this in the past, other countries have done this in the past. To demonetize bills that people use for regular transactions, that is somewhat, uh, you know, very unusual uh, for, for uh, so I think, Frankly, if India had demonetized using the, the, only the thousand rupee ones, it would have not created anywhere close to this kind of debate, concerns, effects 
because even thousand rupee notes were not being used quite as much for, for, for transactional purposes. It was really 500 was the bread and, bread and butter. So, you know, if you left the 500 alone, uh, it just demonetized a thousand, I think a lot of the same arguments would be, could, have, could have been made without the, the associated disruptions. And I don't think it would have created, uh, yeah, you and I could have had an argument about it, but. But, but that's it. it. Yeah, but that's it. But, you know, I think what becomes problematic is to say that I'm going to take what people use for transactions. You know, it's not, because you can say cash is used for multiple reasons, for transactional purposes, and, but I only want people to use it for transactions, not to start hoarding income. But then demonetize what people would use to hoard income. 500 no one's using to, to hoard income. It would be kind of weird for somebody to use 500, uh, you know. So that part of it just revealed some you know, uh, maybe hadn't been thought through properly. I don't know what, what the thinking was. It was, it was just poorly done. And then the ex post rationalization then is sort of ignoring the fact that what you said then about what you wanted to do, demonetizing 500 rupee notes wasn't going to create any of these other benefits that, that you wanted. So I think it was, that was the bigger mistake. I think a thousand rupee note demonetization, people would not have, uh, would have, yeah, it wouldn't have created this kind of disruption. So moving from demonetization, I mean, you have worked on monetary policy in India. You also worked in the Fed in the New York. So you have very wide experience. I'm reading from one of your articles. So you mentioned that current monetary policy appears to be based on a routine application of developed country principles to the Indian context, a leap that may well be completely misplaced. So. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? That what is this difference between conducting monetary policy in the US versus let's say in India? Yeah, so I think the, the big thing is monetary policy works, you know, through a couple of channels. One is this idea that somehow there is some, you know, some things don't move all, all the time. They're kind of predetermined. So if you inject some cash, somehow you generate more liquidity in the system there's more cash circulating, it'll create its own demand because some, some things are not moving. So you might say prices are not moving. Maybe that's one of the things that is, makes liquidity injection creates real effect. So some, you know, a lot of the thinking in developed countries is based on that kind of work. So if you, if you think about you know, uh, output just being decomposed into you know, pieces of you know, who is demanding that output, whatever we produce. So we produce what's being demanded, and sometimes there is we produce more than what's being demanded. Sometimes the country produces a bit less. So, but there has to be overall some match between what's being demanded and what's being produced. So our demand, you know, you think of this as aggregate demand is really what's being managed through monetary policy. That and th those have really uh, two big components to aggregate demand. There is consumption demand that you know individuals and businesses and households have, and then there is this investment demand, which is. And so monetary policy is really targeting those two things. Indirectly, sometimes it target, targets, uh, you know, the net export side in as much as it affects exchange rates and so on. But government spending, which is the other big component of aggregate demand, is really the domain of fiscal policy. It doesn't come under monetary policy. So what the government is, you know, what monetary policy tries to do is affect consumption or investment. That consumption demand is often based on my purchasing power. You know, so if I get somehow more purchasing power, I might want to consume more. That additional purchasing power in turn is what liquidity is trying to create. So if I inject liquidity, for some reason, if prices don't respond, if there's 5% you know, more liquidity in the system, but prices are not rising at the same rate, we have some increases in our purchasing power, and that's what shows up in, in consumption demand. The other part is what, what are you know, firms and businesses doing. Now, most of the time, what people are varying you know, as policy levers are these interest rates. So now think about on a, from a consumption side, by the time all of this interest rate changes translate into liquidity, which translates into effective demand on the consumption basis for individuals, is a mechanism that is barely there in India. It is there much more because people use, you know, uh, there, there is a mapping from interest rates to consumption in a much more, you know, straightforward way in, in, in industrial countries, simply because there is a lot more use of, uh, you know, 
the interest rate is a well-defined price of consumption because people are borrowing and lending all the time, so financial markets are much more developed. And as a result, consumption decisions, whether you're using credit cards to do this, whether you're borrowing through you know, credit in advance or, or lending lines from your banks, those interest rates become a key component of consumption decisions. So anytime interest rate changes, you know, people are taking out equity lines from their housing, whether they're you know, dump, you know, choosing to buy more durable goods when uh, interest rates drop because you know, suddenly the, the cost of credit has gone down. You can take out an equity line from your house. But those things don't operate in India. It's like a very cash consumption is still very cash dependent on overall. So in the US, maybe you'll swipe your credit card here. Maybe you'll ask your family. Yeah, you'll ask your family. You're so, sort of, most people are really going still to this day, independent of what we say. Uh, most consumption demand is really going from cash to goods and goods to cash. I mean, that's, that's really the, the conduit. And some amount is put away as savings. And so there's a little bit of what's going on with but those But businesses would be more... Yeah. So then that comes to the second part, so investment. So what we really have when we are playing with this interest rate policy is really credit policy. That's what we are trying to play with. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the mapping from interest rates to I, to investment. And that's our credit policy. We don't really have monetary policy in that sense. It's really, one should call it credit policy. That's what India has. Uh, because the mapping to consumption is, 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 is weak at best. So then, you know, but we continue. Credit policy doesn't necessarily work the same with the same frictions, the idea that we have that why does monetary policy work? Well, because prices are sticky. That's a very consumption-oriented idea. And those, those things work in, in, in the West to some extent, simply because even there, there is debate. How much is the, is the effect of monetary policy? And so I'll come to that, that you know, how effective is the monetary policy transmission in some sense. But conceptually, the idea is people have tried, spent a lot of time trying to measure how sticky our prices is, uh, you know, our prices moving or not, and then what is the implication? So using those estimates. So people spend their careers doing this, you know, trying to, why? Because that's the structure that, of monetary policy that they're pursuing. What is also well known is that prices tend to be way more f flexible. I remember we did some work on it together. Yeah, we did some. So prices tend to be way more flexible in countries like ours, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to the West, where inflation is traditionally much lower. So, you know, a lot of contracts are long-lived. Prices tend to be stickier because, you know, prices don't really change. Overall, inflation isn't changing. So individual producers don't feel the need to have to change it all the time. Here, nobody will want to get stuck with a one-year contract, because, except the you know, wage earners like you, who are probably stuck uh, you know, with one-year contracts. But the remainder, you know, they just go with very short-term contracts. So prices you know, move, as we found. You know, they, they were moving day-to-day, -day, at least in, these, in the grocery segment, it was, it was working. Uh, and it is true in general, prices move much more in developing countries than they do in, 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 in developed countries. So therefore, to conduct monetary policy based on a perspective which is very, very based on consumption, uh, uh, you know, transmission of monetary policy is missing half of it. Because here it's really what matters is credit policy. And so there you have to now worry about how much a bank's transmitting of this to, uh, to, the, to the end consumer, to the end, end, end borrower, which is firms. And that is the main thing that you, and so, but credit policy can work independent of stickiness of prices. But what we are using as a framework to do all of this is not so much we have the same sticky price, uh, you know, kind of perspective at what the monetary policy injections are doing. So, so it's not going to transmit in the same way, but we are also using inflation targeting on top of that now. Yeah. So where does that bring in? So inflation targeting can be rationalized independently, right? I mean, inflation targeting can be rationalized independently for the simple reason that price setting needs anchors. You know, when anyone is setting prices, when I'm if I'm running a business, if I'm trying to set a price, I need to have some projection about where, uh, you know, aggregate prices are going to be, how they're going to be changing. Because that is my anchor so that I decide my sort of relative price uh, based on that. Because I'm trying to figure out what price should I set for the next year based on how I feel I think aggregate prices are going to move. That requires some kind of anchor. And there is this little bit of indeterminacy there in the sense that if I don't have an anchor, this inflation expectations can be going all over the place. So inflation targeting sets a little bit of an anchor that you know everybody understands this is what the central bank is trying so, to deliver. So if we ask, I mean, inflation expectations survey have been done in the US as well. So, and over there as well, you always find that 
consumers are reporting anything under the sky oh yeah yeah firms are reporting firm managers who should be better informed they are reporting anything under the sky in india rbi has a target of 4% i'm sure if you go out on the street almost no one would know what the target is so okay so so i'll come back to the indian case uh, in in just a bit so what happens outside uh, at least in terms of the inflation expectations so you can look at it from firms the you know firm i've just done some recent work on this uh, that's why I, i know a little bit about this um and there are household expectations so the you know what ends up happening is short term expectations which are like, like these 3 months 6 month 1 year they're very highly correlated with current expectation you know uh, current inflation so as these things move what matters to so, but when you look long term expectations about 2 years out 3 years out those things are remarkably flat around that you know announced fed target of 2%. So the anchoring you want is for the long run. Yeah, for the long term because that's the planning horizon that people often, you know, when they're putting in plan, you know, putting in place business plans and so on, the horizon is really that. The short horizon stuff can become much more volatile based on what's going on, which is why this current episode was was a bit destabilizing because what we've had in in the west for the last 20 25 years is we haven't had sustained deviations from the inflation target for you know anything more than you know eight quarters you know so it would typically go up and it would fluctuate around drift up come down drift up come down around that 2% target what happened over the last uh, you know since 2022 you know early 2022 or you know late 2021 was that these deviations from target you know persisted for you know 6 8 10 months and that's when you start seeing these expectations you know deviations beginning to kind of really uh, you know take off and that's why all these central banks which initially responded by saying that oh these are just temporary shocks we're not going to respond the belief being that inflation expectations are anchored the long run if it's a temporary shock it's all going to come down anyway i'm thinking it's supply shocks hitting the economy you know the ukraine war has disrupted food and all of that is going to somehow take care of itself and it's all going to come down and so these inflation which responds in the in the short term the inflation expectations are respond but it's going to go away because inflation the original driver of inflation is going to kind of go away but when that didn't happen even in other words the supply shocks were much more persistent than than the people were expecting they did a rapid pivot and when they pivoted the argument was precisely this that inflation expectations are at danger of becoming unanchored and that was the major concern if you are so i'll ask a question this is more opinion over here like the market was kind of factoring that longer run expectations have changed now do you think fed was a bit behind the curve on this um there maybe maybe uh, i think they could have i mean there was there's a little bit of two things going on at the same time one was how much of this was supply driven and how much of this is demand driven now you know as i we were discussing earlier monetary policy is in the business of managing demand it's a demand side instrument it really can't impact long run supply conditions so supply shocks we have a much harder time using monetary policy to do except for if somehow these supply shocks become so long running that they start causing inflation expectations to become unanchored then you have to somehow do something to try and prevent that from happening otherwise all you're trying to do is manage you should respond to demand side shocks but you should kind of stand still if it's just supply side disturbances that as a rough you can find exceptions to what i, I simplified <laughs> things a bit but uh, to a first approximation that's what you that's how you would describe uh, the optimal performance or how monetary policy should be conducted the fed had this little problem at this point where it was all going along with this uh, you know supply side thing which was a global phenomenon i mean it was not just the us thing but on top of that came two massive fiscal boosts that were given to the to the us economy because first there was uh, the, just the covid recovery plan and then there was this big infrastructure boost uh, which was a total of about 3 trillion dollars which so you might say that the us economy was after covid was maybe half a trillion below trend but then when you throw in 3 trillion on top of that now you're saying you're likely above trend 
But that's a demand boost, right? I mean, people are being given checks. People are just staying at home. They're, they're receiving these massive... Which probably made the supply shock worse because production was not happening. Was production was not responding to, you know, there was this massive boost in demand that happened. But this is precisely when you would think that the Fed monetary policy has to kick into action. When they're looking at the same inflation marker, you know, you, know, you and I deal with this all the time. When we're looking at prices and quantity data and we have to figure out whether it's demand or whether it's supply, there is often this identification issue. What all we see is you know, a, one price and one quantity. And now we're trying to figure out, is that prices and quantities are moving because price, supply is moving or is demand moving? And both of those things were going on at this point, once the Biden fiscal stimulus had kicked in, that there was a demand side. And arguably, the Fed kind of stayed put, did not respond in as much as if there was a big demand side uh, driver to the higher inflation, the Fed probably moved a little late. Let me anchor the conversation back a little bit. So inflation targeting India. Yeah. yeah. So that's where we were yeah, before so we I, th- I think, uh, you know, there's clearly been, um, it did two things. I think there was, there was um, I, I'll say another thing about inflation in India. So I do think inflation targeting was a helpful thing to do. I'm not sure the target we chose uh, as the target that the, the, the Monetary Policy Committee was supposed to be looking at was appropriate for the instrument that it has because we are targeting headline inflation, which has uh, you know, a huge weight on food and fuel, which, which are so supply-side phenomena. headline inflation includes everything under the sun. Everything in, under the sun, while all these other countries are really targeting core core inflation, which strips out food and, uh, and fuels from it. But wouldn't the core and headline be very close uh, in terms of the weights? So, you know, the, because the core doesn't have, uh, you know, it's, it has food and uh, fuel stripped out from it. It doesn't have it. But headline... But there would be much less component in a more advanced economy. Yeah. So that's, the, that's why it doesn't move quite as separately in developed countries because the share of food is much smaller. This is like, you know, so in India, it's like 58%. Food plus fuel is 58%. In these richer economies, it's in, you know, uh, it's in the teens, most of it. So it doesn't, these two measures don't move quite as violently, you know, uh, different from each other. But here, all kinds of things move food prices. All kinds of things move, you know, things that are uh, exogenous to India affect uh, gas prices, fuel prices. And all of those things are translating into massive movements in inflation. But the, you know, the monetary policy MPC's tool, toolkit involves an instrument that's really hitting demand. So you're constantly using an instrument to affect demand when the shock that is moving prices can be coming from the supply side. So it's like, a, in some sense, you're, you're at risk of using the wrong instrument to affect uh, what is causing inflation to start with. So, arguably, no, so maybe you are using the right instrument to target the wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe that's semantics. I don't know. Yeah, maybe wrong instrument target the right one or the right instrument target the wrong one. Maybe. I don't know. I have to think through that. It's, it's sort of a... Sort so of a ideally, you would want to target core, which is inflation stripped out of food. Yeah, and fuel. food and fuel removed from. from. That would be the, the, the right way to... That would be an appropriate match of the policy instrument with uh, the... the uh, the, 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 the variable that you're trying to target or the measure of inflation that you're trying to target, it's demand and demand. I mean, that's, that's it's a demand side instrument. Except with this caveat that, you know, there is a component to inflation. Inflation is driven by inflation expectations and inflation expectations are responding to what the, you know, what the MPC is announcing. So in as much as they are announcing that, you know, we are uh, targeting 4%, uh, it does have an anchoring effect on inflation expectations as opposed to the previous system that we had where nobody was clear what was being targeted. I mean, it was, uh, it was a multiple indicators approach, so, which basically was... Uh, you didn't know what the policy function yeah, of the RBI nobody, is. Yeah, we had no idea what, what that thing was doing. So there, here, there was clarity about what at least the, 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 this monetary policy committee is trying to achieve, which helps if, for people to form plans, to form ideas, and form expectations about what what should what might happen going ahead that was missing earlier so i think that was but i have issues with with the instrument that uh, with the measure that they chose to target in the end in terms of inflation in india i do think 
the government, just because of this food interface, the government has a massive role to play in what happens in inflation, as opposed to industrial countries again. Where, so we are somewhat distinct in the way we are because of, again, this food price. What happens to food prices in India has a lot to do with what the government is doing in terms of, you know, whether it's minimum support prices, whether it's how they're handling, FCI is handling, uh, you know, release of food, whether we are importing or whether we are not. But fruits and vegetables, which are much more volatile in their prices. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are lots of pieces here which are outside the ambit of the RBI or the, or the MPC, but really slam bang in the middle of what the, what, what the government controls and the government can affect much more directly. And yet that measure is what goes into headline inflation, which is what the MPC is responding to, even though it's really the government that has a more uh, direct control over some pieces of it. And that's why there's a mismatch. And so some of the credit, I think, for inflation having come down from those gory double-digit rates that we used to have uh, in, in, you know, so for example, in the 2000s, I mean, we just had routinely, uh, you know, double-digit inflation rates, not just 2000, up until about 2010, 2000, up until 2012, until Raghu became, uh, uh, 2013, I think, was a bit of a state shift, and then you see inflation rates coming down, but up until that point, I mean, we, we were just used to double-digit inflation rates. So there's some role of government in it as well. Yeah, and so that's what I was going to say, that I think the government has, has to be applauded for, you know, have, having kept a lid on food prices in, you know, through not giving ground on MSP, just like handing out. Uh, I haven't looked at FCI. I have to, uh, you know, just looking at how food prices have become less volatile over the last, uh, you know, seven, eight uh, years. I would think FCI is probably doing a better job than they used to. I know a lot of people don't think the FCI knows what they're doing, but but uh, you know, at least looking at the reduced out, you know, the reduced form outcome that of just what food prices are doing, it seems you know various arms of the government are doing a better job of of uh, preventing food prices from moving the way they used to. They're still moving around; they're volatile, but nothing like what used to happen earlier. And the level of inflation of food prices are much lower than they used to be. There's still volatility, but we earlier had also volatility around a higher mean. So we had 14% inflation, which would have... Which would five. then volatile move around. And so we had the worst of both worlds. We had a high mean and then uh, lots of fluctuations around that. That has, you know, we have a lower mean. Probably the volatility is still there, but, but that's because it's still a very, you know... Agriculture in India still is very irrigation, you know, rain-fed, monsoon-based irrigation. So I don't think there's, uh, you know, we're getting better at it. Probably we probably should be embracing international trade and food more uh, in order to stabilize this kind of uh, volatility. But certainly I think the government should be applauded for having, uh, you know, a big part of the inflation stabilization. The fact that it is, you know, it's now much stabler than it used to be is because it's the government that really controls a large part of it, at least the headline stuff. The headline course, stuff. Yeah. So following on this, this is not just specific to India, I was going through your research, and one of your recent papers talks about if you have inflation targeting, then your exchange rate basically moves with the price of the oil. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically you get tied, in some sense, your currency gets tied to the price of oil. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can tell us about this. Work. Yeah, it was actually an interesting finding. I mean, this was, I was writing this in, in Canada in, initially. Uh, I'll just give you a little backstory to this paper. Uh, Canada in general has been a pretty diverse economy, right? I mean, it has manufacturing, it's got, but it also has, the western part of Canada has huge amounts of oil and gas. So Alberta, and it relies on you know, natural resources and so on. And then we were faced with a situation in, in the mid 2016, when all oil prices began to go up, and the Canadian dollar just kept appreciating like like uh, like crazy, and and it was like it was clockwork. I mean, you know, the, the you know oil prices would go up, the do, the Canadian dollar would appreciate. So at some point, I mean, and you know, the manufacturing guys were were complaining because uh, you know that this is not just an oil economy. And the idea was that at that point, the, the subtext in this debate in Canada was that uh, there was a conservative government in power whose base, the prime minister at the time, was from Alberta, which was this very you know, oil and gas uh, uh, rich uh, province. 
So there was a there was a sort of an unwritten uh, you know subtext here that somehow this was all politics that you know that they were essentially it was like you know policies geared towards Alberta as opposed to uh, Ontario and so on which is much more manufacturing. So in fact I wrote an op-ed with a colleague of mine at the time saying that you know this is uh, converted Canada into a uh, you know into into a commodity currency which is you know it's not a commodity country and so on it is much more diverse than that. But then I kind of got interested in it and started looking at other inflation targeting, uh, you know, countries going back. So it like collected a huge amount of data going back to 1989 and New Zealand and all the way out. And, and lo and behold, there's like a bizarre pattern where, you know, countries that were previously, you know, were currencies were not responding to oil. And as soon as they, uh, after they converted, after the switch to inflation targeting, you had this response of the currency appreciating every time oil prices went up. So explanations, the simple one would be that when oil prices go up, it does have an impact on inflation because uh, in, in, in as much as imported goods, uh, you know, in, in as much as oil uh, is a big uh, intermediate input, it starts raising. And uh, for most of the economies, they import. Yeah, right? they import. And uh, even if it's not, that's the opportunity cost. I mean, even if you're exporting the good, but if the world price goes up, your, you know, the price at which oil will sell at home is not going to be any different unless the government is subsidizing uh, oil at home, which most of these guys don't. So uh, as a result, every time uh, oil prices go up, you know, there is an effect on inflation. So now if as a central bank, you're in, an inflation targeter, you will respond by raising rates. But raising rates, in as much as it appreciates your currency, will cause uh, an appreciating currency. So that would be the, uh, the simple way of thinking through what's going on. There's another more exotic uh, explanation, which is related to this uh, idea that uh, sometimes we're just missing a nominal anchor. And inflation targeting can create indeterminacy in certain cases. So, you know, you can, you can have this world where things have become indeterminate and then you use oil prices as an anchor to price the exchange rate. But that's a sort of a higher order explanation. I think the most logical one is the one I just told you. So India doesn't have this for a very long period of time, but does it hold for India as well or we don't know? And India was, I think in the sample, I can't remember, India switched very late. It was to 2016 that 2016. they changed and I think our data just was going to 2018, which is when I did it. So I think I didn't include it. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember what uh, whether we did it or not. But again, I mean, talking about monetary policy in India, I mean, you know, just following it, uh, even though it's an inflation targeting country, at least when I listen to all the monetary policy speeches that the governor makes after every monetary policy decision, they always lead off with what's going on with the real side of the economy that, you know, they're measuring. So it almost seems like the U.S. Fed, which is, you know, clearly has two goals. The U.S. Fed has, is trying to trade off inflation and, uh, you know, employment and, uh, you know, the, the real side of, and growth. That's how uh, I hear the speeches that the, that the MPC members make and uh, the debates have a huge amount of discussion on what's going on in growth and uh, we are trying to you know, balance things. That doesn't sound like an inflation targeting economy. So it's there on paper, they're supposed to deliver it. But you know, I think maybe the way to think of it is they have a hierarchy of goals and you know, the inflation goal is up here. So as long as the markers are somewhat aligned with the target, they start focusing on other things and that's why uh, but certainly it's not the kind of narrative that you would typically expect to hear from a, a strict inflation targeting central bank, which would really be talking about what are my inflation markers and wh where do I see this go. We spend a lot of time discussing growth. So it's not a, doesn't sound like a, a sort of a pure inflation targeter. And for a weak inflation targeting, they are doing okay. They're doing okay, yeah, absolutely. But as I said, a lot of the credit for that is the government. Yeah? I mean, it's uh, not... Uh, uh, you know, hand it all off to the to the MPC. To the RBI, yeah. the MPC. Okay, I'll move to another part of your research work, which is also like fairly in depth, and you have been following it for a decade now. Uh, you have been tracking the productivity and income differences in India. And so, one of the interesting things you have talked about is structural transformation. Maybe you can tell us what it is, and then also talk about that it has led to decline in the wage gap between rural and urban areas. So why is it important and what does it tell us about inequality in India? Yeah, so uh, one of the well-known facts of development is that as countries develop, uh, there is a change in the industrial composition, the structural composition of the economy. That's why it's called structural transformation. 
that economies start off being very agrarian and then gradually as development kicks in, the you know, resources begin to flow from agriculture towards manufacturing and industry. Uh, the agricultural sector's importance gradually declines and the role of manufacturing becomes more important. And then gradually there's a third stage where you move into services, where the economy becomes gradually much more service sector oriented. So that's called structural transformation. So India has clearly, uh, you know, been going through the structural transformation process with a little bit of a twist that we seemingly have jumped to stage three without really going through stage two. So there has been a declining importance in terms of share of output of agriculture over the last, uh, you know, 30, 40 years. It hasn't been accompanied by a big increase in the share of manufacturing. What it has been accompanied by is a big share of increase in the share of services in the Indian economy. So in some sense, we seem to have at least in, in uh, both in terms of share of output and in terms of share of employment, service sector has been the major uh, gainer in the last uh, you know, 30 years. So agriculture has been shrinking in importance, but uh, it's the service sector. So we seem to have kind of jumped the middle stage. But nevertheless, there is the structural transformation of uh, economy to becoming uh, a sort of a non-agrarian economy to, you know, just pool together both uh, services and manufacturing, just think of them as non-agrarian. The key thing is uh, agriculture is much more, is, is rural. So that's a transformation which involves people, people, individuals actually having to make change what they're doing. And that change also involves not just change what you're doing, but often changing where you do what you do because the expanding sectors are typically urban. Mostly, you know, doesn't always have to be tier one, but you know, tier three, smaller towns. That's where the growing uh, components of the economy are. And you know, the, so you have, to, you have to change what you're doing and you have to go to new places to do what you want to do. That's where this rural urban becomes an important thing. So if you, if you think about the economic structure of an economy, you have uh, you know, three sectors, and you can do this in rural or you can do this in urban. The problem is that rural is mostly agrarian, urban is mostly non-agrarian. So if the agrarian part is shrinking, these people have to move to the urban sectors to find. So this rural-urban disparities then become uh, like a big thing about like, you know, so as the transformation is happening, you might expect that these, uh, you know, rural-urban gaps are going to widen. Uh, that because rural opportunities are disappearing, and where do these guys go, what do they do? Uh, and fact of the matter is in India, 50% of the work, I mean, we are still very agrarian, in the, very rural in the sense of 50% of India, actually more, lives in rural, rural India, it's about 60%. We haven't done a census in a while, so we're not sure what the numbers are, but you know, it, it's but still- But it won't go down. It won't go down much, and agriculture is still about 50% of the labor force, maybe 46, 47%. So it's hugely, the the share of people who rely on rural India and on agricultural India is massive, right? So then what has happened over these last 40 years when we've unleashed reforms? We've un so just to think about like in the international context, would it mean that agriculture or rural areas would have lower wages and the inequality would grow? Yeah, so, so one is just the level difference. Rural areas, wages are lower, urban wages are higher. Some of that reflects higher cost of living in urban areas than rural areas, but even adjusting for that, urban wages tend to be higher. But the question is, as an economy is going through the structural transformation, does this gap widen or does this shrink? Is, okay. is I guess, the key question one wants to ask. The level gap is there, but does it shrink or does it widen? In India, it has shrunk. Over the last, uh, you know, at least since 1983, rural-urban gaps have declined. A good counterexample is China, where, uh, you know, during that same period, since the mid-80s to about 2010, you know, the rest of the structural transformation is quite similar, except rural-urban gaps are widened. In, in so this is in terms of wages or in terms of, in, in terms of ages? Yeah. Also in terms of uh, household consumption. Household consumption is a more muted effect wage, uh, you know, movements are much sharper. Uh, but it also shows up in household consumption. But, you know, rural-urban disparities in China have actually widened. And so one story, that the story I like, is in China, they've imposed all kinds of restrictions on people moving from one area to another. In particular, if you have sort of a rural passport, they call them hukos. So if you have a rural huko of a specific province, you can't just move to an urban uh, area 
in that, within that same province, leave, leave alone going to other provinces. So in effect, what it's doing is it's, it's depressing labor supply to the expanding urban sector, which needs labor, but they're not getting enough. So that just pips up wages in urban sector. In and those guys area. are stuck in And these guys are stuck, so that gap kind of widens. Whereas in India, there is no such friction. So in fact, if you're poor today, the worst affected are the urban poor, where cost of living is incredibly high, cost of shelter is very high. So a lot of them are construction workers who show up. They often sleep at the construction site. So it's pretty poor living. And they don't have the family farms to allow them to, uh, you know, the subsistence becomes an issue. Whereas in rural areas, there's at least also Narega helps in rural areas. So it, it has really provided, in India today, if you're poor, it's, it, there's going to be nothing worse than being urban poor. Rural poor are actually a bit better off than, than, than urban poor. I mean, at least that, that's where it's kind of relatively going, speaking. The, relatively speaking, yeah. And then following on this research, I also saw that you also did like something similar based on caste. Yeah, that was actually the first paper we'd done on, on caste, trying to understand, uh, you know, what has happened in terms of disparities across castes in India, which also came out of some, it was a bit of an embarrassing. I remember there was a, there was a gathering at a colleague's place, uh, you know, it was 13 years ago. And, uh, you know, over dinner, there was, you know, one of the non-Indians, there was a very India-centric uh, collection of people. And in conversation turned to caste, uh, caste system in India and so on. And then there, were this, there was this uh, one non-Indian in that room who just turned around and asked, well, what has happened to these gaps over time? We keep hearing of India growing and so on. Have caste disparities declined? There have been reservations in place and so on. And we kind of looked around and nobody really knew the answer. And so it was a bit of an embarrassing moment that a whole room full of Indians and a lot of them working on development economics had no answer to what has happened to uh, caste disparities in India, despite India having probably the oldest affirmative action program and on a wide scale going back to 1952. So, uh, you know, it's like elementary uh, program assessment. <laughs> you kind of have a program which was supposed to be Temporary in nature, it was not, that was not uh, uh, Baba Ambedkar's, uh, you know, initial idea that the reservations were going to last for as many years as they have. So you should do have, we should have been doing periodic assessments on, you know, how it's working out. But as late as 2010, actually, you know, as late as, this was 2009-10, there was nothing, uh, you know, in, in a systematic way. There would be like one pocket of a study on like some caste disparities in one mohalla in, in Mumbai, somebody else would have done an anthropological study on another group in some other place. But we are talking of India-wide over a long period of an time. An economic disparity. Uh, economic disparities tracked over time, not just at a point in time that are there gaps. A lot of the, the anthropological kind of studies, case studies that existed were really telling me that there were gaps between the, the, you know, the scheduled castes and uh, the Dalits and non-Dalits at a point in time. But that's not telling me whether the gaps have increased or decreased. So, this is where, at some point, this non-Indian and I uh, kind of teamed up. So this was Victoria Ratkowska. And I sort of started actually trying to look at this question in a more systematic way. And that's led, led to the caste paper. And we were really pleasantly surprised. So at least I was. what's the time period for this study? That this is 1983, the first year that we have unit-level data from the uh, NSS. We did that particular study till 2009-10, which was the, 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 the round that was available at the time, the last one. We've now have done a follow-up paper because that one was just documenting the facts that there has been. So what we found there was between 1983 and 2009-10, there has been, you know, a narrowing of caste gaps in wages. So scheduled caste versus non-scheduled caste. That was our, uh, that because those identities have remained immutable, because, immuted because, you know, there's been this backward class versus reservations. Those have changed over the 90s. But SCs and, and non-SCs, that identification hasn't changed. So it's an immuted, uh, immutable identity. So that's what we were contrasting. Wage gaps have shrunk. Consumption gaps have shrunk. Education gaps have shrunk. Employment distribution you know, a big narrative of caste is really that we are, that some caste are unable to transit into occupations, into, you know, there is barriers to occupation mobility. Occupation distributions have become similar. And most heartingly, hearteningly, we also found that intergenerational mobility, that, you know, our children of SCSTs changing their uh, occupations, changing their education status, improving their wages relative to their parents, 
at a faster rate than non-SES children. And it was like, you know, intergenerational mobility was actually faster amongst uh, SCSDs, has been during this period. So then I've done a follow-up paper now. So that was all about just facts. Those are just plain facts. And then there's a follow-up paper now which is trying to explain it. And what we say is that, I mean, what I find is that just productivity changes uh, can explain a lot of it because, you know, uh, some sectors were growing and people, it's education was the main driver and a lot of self-selection into, uh, into greater education, to higher education. So if you have to rank order, like, would reservation play some role? No, reservation really is, you know, it doesn't play much because it didn't really change. You know, the reservations have always been there pre and post 1983. It was there from 1952. What has changed is the growth rate. It's like, you know, which has created a massive demand for labor of a certain skill set. And that has created demand for, demand for education. And that is what, it's like this education that is the major driver of all of this, this catch up because SCSTs have been increasing their education uh, attainment rates at a, at a really fast pace relative to the others. And that has been the source of the catch up, which, which I think is a really, because that's a policy actionable thing that, you know, which is education based. It's, it's, uh, that's the major driver. Now, coming to that other question you asked, which is about what can, what does this tell me about inequality in India? So inequality, you can think of as a, as a uh, two-dimensional thing. This d discussion of rural-urban, SCSTs, non-SCSTs, this is really about intergroup inequality. And so both these pieces of work, research that, that I've done basically are suggesting that intergroup inequality has narrowed in India. But then there's another source of inequality, which is within group, you know, that within group inequality. So, uh, you know, there are ways of, I mean, uh, so since you, you do a lot of statistical work, I know. So, you know, if you have a thyl index, a thyl index is very nice because you can essentially decompose inequality into these two pieces and it's additive. You can add them up. So you have a within group inequality, within group component and a between group component. And then you can ask which one is the main driver of inequality. So I think the Indian story really is within group inequality possibly has widened, but between group inequality has, has shrunk. And, and, and my research work has mostly been on this between group, but I think within group inequality has possibly. So uh, it opens up a lot of questions on how we think about the resolution. How we issue. think of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That was perfect. It was great talking to you. Well, it was lovely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, and it's good to see you as always.